May I speak in the name of the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. My vicar told me always to preach on the most difficult sentence of the reading. And uh, for me, that is definitely from our first reading from the letter to the Colossians. The wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. One of the most famous sermons of the 18th century was preached by a what we'd now call a Congregationalist minister in New England, who was both a scientist and a theologian. The title he gave to the sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he begins his sermon saying that we are like spiders held over the fire by God and he will throw us into the fire if we do not follow the ways of Christ. Now, I could preach, I think, for a week on the errors in that image, um, but you'll be grateful I'm not going to do that. Um, however, the scriptures do talk of God's wrath, God's fierce anger. And as Christians, we need to be very careful indeed. Because talk of God's wrath has been used frequently and quite wrongly in the church in an attempt to exclude others or to diminish them. It's quite appealing for preachers to say, everyone else is wrong and they're all damned, but I'm right and so are you if you agree with me. Uh, to put it that way seems trivial, but the way that the picture of an angry, vengeful God has been presented at times by the church is sub-Christian and quite unworthy, quite unworthy of the God whom we worship. Nevertheless, we read here and elsewhere in scriptures we read God saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. How are we to understand these words of God to us? in all their sternness. I think we can begin from the poem of Cardinal Newman, The Dream of Gerontius, which of course is also a, a sort of memorable oratorio. Gerontius, who has the dream, is brought before God in all God's beauty and power. 
and he screams, take me, take me away from the presence of God because it's too overwhelming. God's love is so intense that Gerontius receives it as anger. He feels it as judgment of all that is in him that is sinful and wrong. Just say that again. God's love for us is so intense that Gerontius feels so overwhelmed by his sin that he wants to be taken away from God because God's love feels to him like anger. This is how we are to understand the wrath of God in the scriptures as bearing witness to the intensity of God's love for us, an intensity that shows up our sinfulness very clearly. God's love for us and God's judgment of sin are the same thing. So, so how then do we live? This doctrine of God's love, God's love which in sin we may feel as anger, this gives us hope, hope that God's love will require an absolute rejection of all that is cruel, destructive and bitter in human life. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And in saying that, he is not saying, he does not say, and he will not say that God is vengeful. In that passage, God is saying, you may not be vengeful. I will repay. No Christian, no follower of God can presume that they can take vengeance into their own hands. God says, I will repay. And God's repayment is God's entry into suffering on the cross. We should be very suspicious of any form of Christianity that tries to use God's anger to frighten us. Our whole focus as Christians must be on God's unsearchable love. If we feel God to be angry with us, it is indeed a sign that we must repent and renew our faith in God's mercy so sort of twisted sometimes do we become by sin and even by evil that we find it easier to think of God angrily meeting out justice to those we dislike rather than a God who is endlessly merciful and forgiving. 
It can make us feel all warm inside to think, well, God's going to get them in the end, whoever they might be. But that is an unworthy thought for a Christian. And so the writer of the letter to the Colossians tells us to have done with all of that. Leave that to God. Instead, the writer, who I believe is a follower of St. Paul, presents an image of Jesus sitting in the place of the Roman emperor. The image of a judge sitting on a seat was the image on coins and elsewhere, often shown of the Roman emperor. It showed the emperor sitting as a judge the one with final say over life and death in the whole Roman Empire. And the writer says, no, imagine Jesus sitting, as he truly does, in the place of judgment. Leave behind your human thoughts of violence and retribution and focus instead on Christ, on the things that are above. The writer tells us to seek the things of Christ. So they're not always obvious to us. The deep truths of God, that mercy, gentleness, patience, love, hope, in all their fragility, are like rock on which we can build. We need constantly to reject the logic of violence, of scapegoating, of people getting what they deserve, and constantly rediscover how it might be to live a life focused on giving and receiving mercy, on gentle service of one another. And so the writer says that a world of bitterness, greed, drawing clear lines, rejecting others, is a form of idolatry it's placing our need for a very shallow security in the place of God. When we focus solely on a God of rejection, we are sinning against the second commandment and worshipping an idol. This is, to say the least a strong message. But hear also the words of hope in the letter to the Colossians. I, along with many other senior clergy, have recently been um, receiving what's called unconscious bias training to help us in um, selecting bishops and deans for the future. And this is based on the idea that all of us, whether or not we like to think of it, all of us have prejudices that 
often we're hardly aware of, but can push us very quickly one way or another in how we judge people. And of course, clergy in particular, I can tell you, do not like being told that we may be really rather prejudiced, although we don't like to see it. Um, uh, in a trivial way, I have to acknowledge I am prejudiced against men who are more handsome than I am, <laughs> which means sometimes more or less everybody. Um, don't trust them. Um, I'm ever so slightly prejudiced against people who take a different political view of mine in Northern Ireland. I can't quite believe that they're so pig-headed and I have to fight my prejudice to be fair to them. So you see that something that's very benign, talking about letting go of your biases, can feel, can be very angry-making. And I can tell you during this training, some senior clergy, names are available, not from this diocese, got very angry indeed. How dare you say I have an unconscious bias, they said. Um, and the very patient leader of the workshop just teased and teased and teased and it all fell out on the table. Um, that was quite a, a small example, but of how, how we can experience something that is good and life-giving as so threatening, we actually experience it as anger and diminishment and judgment. But the writer of the letter to the Colossians ends with hope, with a world where anger, revenge, and bitterness have fallen away. The world where Christ and Christ alone is our merciful, loving judge. The writer says, in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. The promise of God is an endless, merciful hospitality where all are welcome, all belong, and no vengeance or anger has any place. May God give us grace to turn away from sin, to turn away from idolatry, so that we may always hold before us our merciful, loving Redeemer, Jesus Christ.